All right, y'all, Acts chapter 20. We're going to do the first 16 verses today. But I want to open with a story that illustrates what we're going to talk about today. I'm sure you all have heard of a man named Billy Graham. He was a famous preacher in recent days. <laughs> the first time Billy Graham ever preached, he was in Bible college. He had four borrowed sermons that he had practiced, which means he got them out of a book or he got them from a friend. He had practiced preaching these. And someone offered him the opportunity to preach at the Bostwick Baptist Church in Florida. He went up, he preached for the first time in front of a live audience, you could say, and he finished his first sermon. But he realized, I didn't go very long and I didn't fill my time. So he thought, I'll just begin and preach my second sermon. So he preached his second sermon. He realized he still hadn't filled his time. So he preached his third and then his fourth sermon. And when all of it was over, all four sermons had taken him eight minutes. <laughs> he stood up and preached four sermons, and it took eight minutes, and then he sat down. And it made me feel a little better about the first time I preached, because at least I didn't do that. If you were to look at that guy in that moment, you'd be sitting there thinking, well, there's one Bible college student who's never going anywhere. But that's not exactly what the case was, was it? In today's passage, we're going to be introduced to a lot of Paul's traveling companions. God used Paul, as you know, in a mighty way to raise up that whole next generation of, of faithful men and faithful leaders. But we're also going to see the first documented case of somebody falling asleep in church. <laughs> and there's a contrast between the two. We're going to read about men like Tychicus and Aristarchus and Luke and Timothy. And then we're going to read about Eutychus, who fell asleep in church. And it reminds me of the difference between Billy Graham decades later when he was preaching to thousands and millions of people and seeing so many come to salvation and speaking to presidents and lying in state in the Capitol building and that young Bible college student that preached four sermons in eight minutes down in Boswick, Florida. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14 says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. What does that mean? It says, I don't see myself as having arrived. Like I finally made it. I'm finally there. He said, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. The Lord has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. And some of you are even lucky enough to know exactly what that is. You know why God placed you on this earth and you're living it out. But when we compare who we are now with who we ought to be, it can be intimidating and embarrassing and really discouraging. If the Lord had told Billy Graham, I'm going to have you preach before thousands of people, big arenas, and they're all going to come hear you, and then he preached his first sermons, and it took eight minutes, he might have been a little discouraged, like, how am I ever supposed to live up to that? But the good news for you and for me is that God knows that. God understands that a seed has to germinate, it has to sprout, it has to grow, it has to strengthen long before it bears fruit. God gets that. And there is grace with the Lord Jesus to grow up. There's grace to try. There's grace to fail. There's grace to mess up a little bit and get part of it right. And there's grace to keep going. The Lord knows who we are 
He knows what he's called us to be. And when he called us, he anticipated the Eutychus days, we could say. The early days when we're preaching four sermons in eight minutes. The Lord gets it. So I hope today is an uplifting message that all of us, we ought to be striving for Christian maturity. We ought to be moving forward into what God's called us to do. But we've also got to learn to accept the process. That you're not there yet. That it's going to take a while to get there. And that we learn to love not just the idea of where we're going to be someday, but to love what God is doing with us right now. Amen? Well, let's read these first six verses of Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So last week, we saw the three-year season of very profitable ministry in Ephesus. It culminated in a riot because the idol makers in this city were losing so much money from people not worshiping idols anymore, they staged a riot and almost lynched some members of the church, Paul included. So Paul was already planning to leave Ephesus. We saw that last time, that he was already making his plans for the next step. So he figured this is as good a time as any. That's my cue. I'm going to move on and head back to Macedonia. Now, he's been in Ephesus for three years, and he was in Corinth for a year and a half before that. But this is still Paul's third missionary journey. And in chapter 20, it starts to feel like a journey again. Paul would leave and stay as long as he needed to or until a riot ran him out of town, and then he would move on. What Paul is doing is he's going to return to many of the congregations he's planted in order to take a collection for the city of Jerusalem. Remember we talked about that last time, that he's trying to put together a gift basically of goodwill from the Gentile churches to the Jewish churches because there's still that tension and that strangeness between the two. And first he goes to Macedonia. So he's over here in the Roman province of Asia. He's been staying at Ephesus. And he's going to come up here to Macedonia. This is where we had the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. There, of course, could have been others, but those are the three that Luke gave us in the book of Acts. And it says he went through these regions preaching the gospel. Over here on the western side of Macedonia, there's another region called Illyricum. And we know from Romans that he said he had preached the gospel in Illyricum or as far as Illyricum. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, he's going to reference a church in Dalmatia, which is in that region. So Luke doesn't give us any indication that this was when that happened, but it's very possible that this is where you can fit that in. And I mentioned last time that it was during this stage of his ministry that Paul wrote the book of Romans. And I confess that I, I have kind of changed my mind about when he did this, because last time I was like, Paul pretty obviously wrote that when he was in Ephesus. But if he, during this time, preached in Illyricum, 
when he's writing the book of Romans, he mentions ministry in Illyricum. So either he went there before that, and Luke just didn't mention it in the book of Acts, or Paul went here in the chapter 20, and after that he wrote the letter to the Romans. Because in Romans 15, 19, he's talking about all the places he's been. You can look it up. Not a very crucial thing to know, but it's, it's just interesting to me to know when these epistles are being written. And speaking of which, we do know that while Paul is up here in Macedonia is when he wrote the letter 2 Corinthians. There is a long saga between Paul and the church in Corinth that Luke does not narrate. But if you read the letters to the church of Corinth, especially 2 Corinthians, you get a little glimpse into what was going on and the kind of ministry that Paul had to do here. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus during those three years there. And the church was having very serious problems. They had a lot of good things going on, but there was a lot of problems. First of all, the church had divided into factions. You had people that said, oh, I'm, I'm a Paulite. I'm an Apollosite. I'm a Cephas or Peterite. And then you had really spiritual people that say, I don't follow anybody. I just follow Jesus. And they were picking the leader they liked, and they were using that as opportunities to be factious and to have parties in the church. And Paul's like, listen, we're not teaching a different gospel, so you're being carnal by trying pitting us against each other. That was one problem. They had become very tolerant of sin in the church. They were saying, look how gracious we are. Look how much we love people. There was a man, according to 1 Corinthians, in the church who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And they were bragging about it in the church by saying, we're so loving and so tolerant, we're even going to let him come to the church. And Paul's like, get him, what, kick him out of the church, are you crazy? So that was a problem. They also had an issue with class differences, where the workers who worked in the field would come to the church meetings late, and the aristocrats were there a little bit early, and they would not only eat all the food, they would drink all the wine. So they were having communion meetings, and the poor folks would show up. Not only is there no food, but all the aristocrats are drunk at the communion service. So all the problems that we think we have, at least there's not that, right? They also had issues with the spiritual gifts. Paul commends them because they were excited about the spiritual gifts, but they were way out of control. He's like, people are going to walk into your church and think you're crazy. So there's all kinds of problems. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to address those things, and there's other issues as well. But in between, and I'm, I'm summarizing stuff that you can go read on your own, in between, word gets back to Paul that they didn't much care for 1 Corinthians. They did not listen to Paul when he sent that. And he references in 2 Corinthians another letter that he wrote, which we do not have, and Paul refers to it as the letter that he wrote with tears. So, you think 1 Corinthians was tough. Paul wrote another one that he said that was the tough one. We also know that during those three years, Paul took a trip from Ephesus to Corinth, which he refers to as the painful visit. Paul had to show up and start knocking heads together. You get the impression from 2 Corinthians that it was the issue with that man that was living in sin that I was specifically the one Paul showed up to deal with. He's like, we are not doing this in the church, so I'll show up and I'll get him out of here. And we also know, and I'll read some of these verses in a second, that that didn't end well. It didn't end on a happy note. 
So Paul leaves Corinth and goes back to Ephesus. Ministry is great in Ephesus, but there's this tension going on over here with Corinth. And of course, they lived so far away, it was hard to communicate. And Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read verse, chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 1, verse 23, and chapter 2, verse 1, because it's a long section, and Paul kind of meanders, you know how he writes, so I'm just going to get you the essential bits here. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. But we know from the book of Acts, he didn't go to Corinth first, he went to Macedonia first. He says in verse 23, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So this is what's going on. Paul's original plan was, I'll leave Ephesus, I'll go to Corinth, then I'll go to Macedonia, I'll come back down to Corinth, and then I'll take a boat and I'll go to Jerusalem. But the last visit was so painful between Paul and the Corinthians, he thought, I'm just going to skip this one. I can't. I can't have this be the last time I see them for a long time. I'm just going to leave things the way they are. So he went to Macedonia instead. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it tells us that Titus came to Paul in Macedonia. Titus was Paul's go-to guy. He was the one that he sent to handle tough situations. He sent Titus to Corinth here. He would send Titus to Crete later on. Read the book of Titus. It tells you a little about the character of the people of Crete. But when Titus shows up in Macedonia with Paul, at this point in the story, he says the church has finally repented of their sins. They're ready to welcome Paul back. It had all finally come to an end. They probably got some of the troublemakers out of there. And so we read here in Acts 20 that Paul left Macedonia and went to Greece. Paul's up in Macedonia. Titus comes up from Corinth, gives him notice. Look, hey, Paul, it's all gone well. Everything is back to normal. So Paul left Macedonia and came down to Greece, which it's called Greece. That was what they called their country. The Roman province was called Achaia. So this is what's going on here. Luke doesn't narrate all these details because they're not important for his story, but they are very interesting for us, and they're instructive for us as well. So he's in Greece. He probably would have visited the church in Athens as well while he was there. And in verse 3 of chapter 20, where we are today, we see another change of plans, yet another plot against Paul while he was getting ready to set sail. And he's getting ready to go to Syria, which Syria is over here. This is where Antioch is. That was Paul's sending church. So he's wanting to come to the end of his journey, and there's a plot against him. We know that the Jews did not much care for Paul, especially in Corinth, because he had led not one, but two of the synagogue rulers to the Lord. So they didn't much care for Paul. Not only that, but he's traveling to Jerusalem with a large sum of money that he's gathered from all the churches. So they figure, well, we get him out on the water. You know, things happen. People fall in. Money goes missing. So he says, all right, we're not going to take this trip. (laughs) We'll, We'll skip this one and we'll wait for the next one. So he decides to take a detour and go back up to Macedonia. And the next time we catch up with Paul, he's in Philippi, which was the first city in Macedonia that he had preached at. And you'll notice that in verse 5, the text changes from he and them to us and we. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. The last time we saw language saying we went and we did was when Paul was in Troas and then went to Philippi. So now we pick up the we language again when he returns to Philippi. 
which tells us that when Paul left there, he probably left Luke in charge as the pastor of that church. doesn't say it, but it's very possible. Paul would often do that. He'd leave a, a good, godly man behind to take care of things for him. And they all go to Troas from there, and it gives us the list of people. Troas was very often Paul's big port city. He, you could go from here to just about anywhere. So they would wait in Troas for the right boat to come, and that's where they go. All of this that I've been saying, none of it is explicitly spelled out in one passage of the scriptures, but if you bring it all together, you get a full picture of what's going on, which is why, as it's often been said, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And knowing the word brings all these things together, and it's really good to make sure you're cross-referencing things and saying, this reminds me what I saw over here. How does that relate to this? That's how we do theology, is you synthesize what the text says in different places. And we're going to do a lot more of that moving forward here, talking about some of Paul's companions. We're introduced to six of them here, in addition to Timothy. We already know about Timothy. We've read about him quite a bit. We already know about Luke. We also know from 2 Corinthians that Titus is somewhere in the mix here. Very interesting that the book of Acts never mentions Titus, although Paul talks about him quite a bit. Titus was Paul's friend from Tarsus up in Cilicia, and he was the one that went with him to Jerusalem and Antioch when Barnabas came and retrieved him and had him start leading the church in Antioch. And Titus was Paul's faithful companion for the rest of his life, as far as we can tell. But he's not mentioned here in the book of Acts. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians 16, we read this last week, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, when I arrive, talking about this collection that he was taking, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul had already written to the churches and said, get some guys together that you trust and they'll carry the money to Jerusalem. That way Paul's not like, you just give it to me, I'll take care of it, even though Paul was certainly trustworthy. These are the ones that they chose. First we have Sopater. Sopater was from Berea. Remember, Paul went to Berea when he fled Thessalonica because the Jews started a riot there. The Bereans were the ones that tested everything according to the scriptures. They were more noble, it says. But then the Jews chased him from Thessalonica to Berea, which is when he got on that boat and went down to Athens. So Sopater is from Berea. Romans 16.21 mentions a guy named Sosipater. And those were two versions of the same name, similar to Bill and William, for example. So that's probably the same guy. And in Romans 16, 21, Paul calls Sopater his kinsman, which means that Sopater would have been a Jew like Paul. Most of these guys have Greek names or Roman names, I guess you could say. But by referring to him as a kinsman, this guy is a Jew, which makes sense because Berea was the one place where Paul didn't get a chance to establish a strong Gentile presence in the church. Not to say that there wouldn't have been Gentiles, but it's, it's just interesting to note. Then we've got two guys from Thessalonica. These are Aristarchus and Secondus. Aristarchus' name means aristocrat. You can even kind of hear it in his name, Aristarch is where we get that word. And then you have secondus, which means, just like what it sounds, means second. And I could preach just this, but I'm just going to mention it to you. So you've got the aristocrat, and then you've got second. 
Secundus was a very common slave name at this time because he's my number two guy, so we call him Secundus. You'd also meet guys called Tertius or Quartius, which means third and fourth, and this was how they, they would name people like that, or they would nickname them sometimes that. So what you've got here is they're sending somebody who's from the upper classes, from the aristocracy, and they're also sending somebody who could very well have been a slave or at the lower class. So Thessalonica is, is having representatives from all across the, the board, and it's very cool that we're not distinguishing between the two as if one is greater and one's not. You can see unity here in the church. We do not hear from Secondus again in the New Testament, but we actually see Aristarchus a lot. He was one of the two Christians, you remember, who back in Ephesus had been dragged into the stadium when the people were rioting, along with Gaius from Macedonia. He's going to travel with Paul to Rome. In chapter 27, verse 2, Luke is going to be with Paul while he's on that boat. Remember the shipwreck, and then they're on the island of Malta. Aristarchus was with him during that time. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and in Philemon, chapter, there's only one chapter, verse 24, Paul says, Aristarchus greets you. And both Colossians and Philemon were written from prison. So what this means is not only did Aristarchus come with him from Jerusalem to Rome, but he was there with Paul in Rome, helping him out. That, that, that kind of friend is invaluable, huh? The kind of person that will stick with you even when you're under house arrest in Rome. Now we've got Gaius. Gaius is from Derby over here in Galatia. This is from Paul's first missionary journey. Timothy was from Lystra. Derby is Gaius here. Now, there are a ton of people in the New Testament named Gaius. It was a very common name. It's like trying to identify people named John without knowing their last names. So we met a Gaius last week, different Gaius. That Gaius is from Macedonia. This Gaius is from Derby. There's another Gaius in one of the epistles of John. We have no idea if it's the same one or not. There's another Gaius mentioned in one of Paul's letters. Might be the same one, might not. Very common name, but... He was the representative of the Galatians along with Timothy. Then we've got Tychicus and Trophimus. They were from Asia. This is that Roman province Asia, not the continent Asia. We know that Trophimus specifically was from Ephesus, but it doesn't tell us where Tychicus was from. So it could have been Colossae, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Smyrna, any of those churches from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. All those churches are from Asia, so he could have been from any one of those places. Antichicus is going to be the one who is going to be sent to Ephesus and sent to Colossae carrying the letters Ephesians and Colossians. Isn't that cool? He's going to be the guy that gets to deliver those epistles. And in both of those books, Paul refers to Tychicus as the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. He's mentioned in 2 Timothy. And in the book of Titus, Paul says, I'm sending Tychicus to you. When he shows up, you come visit me. So Paul was using Tychicus as an interim pastor so that Titus could come and see Paul. So that shows you the level of trust that Paul had for Tychicus. And then we've got Trophimus, who will be mentioned later on in the book of Acts. He's actually going to cause trouble for Paul, not himself, but because he was from Ephesus, because he was a Gentile, when the Jews in Jerusalem see Paul hanging out with Trophimus, it's going to cause trouble. And he's also mentioned in the book of 2 Timothy. So those are these companions. There's actually a little bit you can learn about some of them from just reading the end of Paul's letters where he says, so-and-so greets you, or I'm sending so-and-so over here, or when Tychicus shows up, you come visit. 
And we know that Paul had other companions too. He had Titus, his friend from Tarsus. We mentioned last time Erastus, who is the city treasurer of Ephesus. He's mentioned several times. Epaphroditus, who was the evangelist that started a lot of these churches, Hierapolis and some of the others. Romans was transcribed by a man named Tertius. Paul didn't handwrite it. He dictated it, and Tertius wrote it down. There's Sosthenes, who was the former head of the synagogue in Corinth, who actually helped Paul write 1 Corinthians. Paul opens it up and says, Paul and Sosthenes to the church in Corinth. We've got Jason, who travels with Paul. He was the one that put up security for him in Thessalonica. Remember when they had a big riot and they basically made him pay for any damages ahead of time? That's Jason. He traveled with Paul. We've got names like Lucius and Artemis and Quartius and Zenus. We know about Timothy. We know about Luke. We know about Priscilla and Aquila. Later on, Paul's going to be doing ministry with Apollos. Formerly, he traveled with John, Mark, and Barnabas, and Silas. There was a guy named Demas who traveled with him, who abandoned Paul later on in his life. These are the men of God that were raised up in these churches. And I like talking about their names because we can just hear the names of the church, and there's not a lot of flavor or color to it. But there were men and women that Paul loved and cared for deeply in these churches. And these were the ones that were raised up to do the ministry. Now they're going to be traveling with Paul the Apostle. Consider this. A few years ago, especially in Ephesus, he'd only been there for three years, these folks had not even heard of Jesus a few years ago. And yet here they are, and we know the future that God has for them. They were part of it now. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. This is one of the key verses for the way that we do ministry anyway. It says that, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, that is leadership in the church. What is leadership in the church for? To equip the saints, you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The leaders in the church exist to raise the members of the church to maturity in Christ, to equip you to do your ministry, to equip you with everything you need spiritually to accomplish what God has called you to do. This is the goal for Christians. Not to spend our lives soaking up someone else's ministry, but to find out the ministry God has called you to do and then to do it to grow in your knowledge of the word, to grow in your skill as a minister so that you can be a valuable minister of the gospel. You don't get to farm out maturity to the pastor. You know, well, he'll keep me straight. Please don't put that on me. <laughs> the Lord will keep you straight. My job is to be constantly pointing you away from myself and onto Jesus Christ. You have to make your own spiritual maturity a priority. You don't get to farm out theology to other people. You have to know it. It's too important for you to let somebody else handle it. Ministry is your job too. Well, they're really not doing a good job around here. Well, it's because you're not helping out. We, we need you to step up. Whatever that is, it looks different for each person. Some of us, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, have the gift of helps or administrations or evangelism or 
prophecy, whatever it is. We've all got a role to play. And the goal of the pastor and the leadership is to raise up men like Aristarchus and Tychicus and Timothy to do the work. Paul couldn't be in all these places. So Paul needed men like this. And it's the same thing for us here. One day, not too far from this, Paul's not going to be able to travel anymore. Paul's going to get arrested. He's going to be taken to Rome for, as far as we can tell, a few years before he's released again. And then after his fourth journey, he's going to be beheaded in Rome. Well, who's, who's there to take up the torch? All these guys that we just read about. If something happens to the, the head, it can't all fall apart. There's got to be more people constantly being raised up to do the work of ministry. He left a legacy that could carry the torch for him. Maybe it's time for you to reorient your thinking, you know? Well, I, I haven't been a Christian as long as I should. These guys had only known Jesus for a couple years. And they were already stepping up into what God had called them to do. And I'll tell you from my own personal experience, when you serve and step out and seek to grow and help and teach others, that's where maturity comes from. You can't wait for maturity to come before you start serving and acting and helping. <laughs> You'll be waiting forever. You mature in that process. One of the most common pieces of advice my wife and I give to new couples that are getting married when we do premarital counseling is you guys need to find a way to do things in the church together, to serve together. And we always hear the same response. Well, we, we don't want to just be so busy that we don't have time to really get to know and love each other. And it's like, hold on. You will grow together as you do this together. This is how you will make friends. This is how you will learn how the other person responds in a crisis. This is how you will grow and mature. This is how the Lord has set it up. So I hope you can get excited and say, okay, we're, we're going to move past being immature. You all know way more scripture than you need to to start stepping up into what God has given you. You all know way more of the Bible than you think you do, and way more than most other Christians around the world do. You know enough to start stepping out into what God's called you to do. So get excited. Say, all right, we're going to do grown-up church. We're going to leave behind what's behind us and move forward into what God has planned for us. Let's move on to verse 7. That's the goal. The goal is Christian maturity, faithfulness, and ministry. We know the goal. Let's look at Eutychus now. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, they're in Troas now, remember? On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So I don't want to hear another word from you <laughs> about me preaching too long. <laughs> there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, his name means lucky or good luck, I don't know if that's ironic or not, but let's keep reading. Sitting at the window, who sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So we already read in the last section, Paul spent the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover, in Philippi, and then went to Troas. So he spent time in Philippi with Lydia. You remember Lydia? 
She was the lady that let Paul start the church in her house, the jailer who had been saved in his family, the young woman who had been the oracle of Philippi and had the demon cast out of her. He got to have Passover with these people. Pretty cool. But now he's with the rest of the team in Troas, and we get what is one of our only peaks into a New Testament church service. And thankfully, it looks remarkably similar to one of our services. It's always nice when you look at the word and you can be affirmed in what you're doing rather than being smacked up the side of the head and corrected, right? It says they met on the first day of the week. It did not take long for the church to start worshiping on Sundays. That was the day that Jesus had risen from the dead. Also, I think it's possible that they met on Sundays because synagogue was on Saturdays and there were many Jews that continued to live like Jews, and there was nothing wrong with them doing that. So they figured, let's just do it on the next day. So we have synagogue, and then we have church on Sunday. And we have Roman history that talks about the Christians that always met on the first day of the week. And there are people that want to make a big deal out of what day we worship. Paul says in Romans 14, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind and leave each other alone, is kind of how he summarizes that. We have church on Sundays and Wednesdays and Tuesdays and Thursdays and sometimes on Saturdays. So it's really funny because folks that really want to get bent out of shape about worshiping on Saturday, it's like, what about Wednesday? Is Wednesday okay? Just not Sunday? What about Tuesday and Thursday? We have home groups. Is that all right? But yeah, it's, it's really nothing to get worried about. Paul says, one man esteems every day alike. I probably fall more into that category. And one man esteems a day as being significant. And Paul's like, it's really not worth arguing about. We don't think we have a faction here that feels very strongly about worshiping on Saturday, but if we did and it became sizable, who cares? We'll do a Saturday night service and a Sunday morning service or a Saturday morning and Sunday morning because it's really not a big deal. Amen? But we see them here worshiping on Sundays. It says that they broke bread. This is not code, but what they're talking about here is breaking bread in communion. They were sharing in the bread and the cup with one another. We do this too. Every first Wednesday, so that's this Wednesday, we're going to share in communion. And every third Sunday, we do that as well. Too important for us to ignore for long. So that's why we always try to make sure that we've got at least twice a month that we're doing that. And Paul preached. And he preached for hours. This is probably an evening service. Okay, so don't think that he started at, you know, 9 in the morning and went until midnight. But he's about to leave. He's never going to see these people again as far as he knows. So he spoke past midnight. And we all laugh and chuckle at that. And rightly so. I mean, come on, Paul. That's a very long time. And you even notice, by the way, somebody fell out of the window dead. And they went back and kept going. (laughs) They didn't stop. So what this shows us is the priority and the importance of teaching and preaching in the church. Just about every generation since this one, has suggested that there should be shorter sermons and less teaching and preaching in the church. You can read your church history very early on because people were coming out of these pagan temples and they were coming into the church and like, all we do is have lectures. There's not a lot of music. There's not a lot of ritual. There's not a lot of this, not a lot of that. But the New Testament keeps it pretty basic. They place a very high priority on preaching and teaching. Let me share a story with you. In the 1940s, so this is during World War II, in Westminster Chapel in London, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones had taken over the church from G. Campbell Morgan. Maybe you've heard of him before. And he was overseeing a meeting where the people were discussing, okay, it's World War II, London is being bombed, we're very concerned, how are we going to fill this church up? (laughs) 
And I'm going to give a couple quotes from his biography here. It says, the question was admitted for discussion, and members of the group began making suggestions. 1940s, they're saying, we've got to fill this church up. See if this sounds familiar to you. Suggestions along the lines of more music, livelier music, special musical numbers, shorter sermons, sermons not so deep, more variety in the services, etc. Nothing's changed. It's been 80 years. Nothing's changed. Everybody thinks they've got new ideas. Nothing new under the sun, as Solomon put it, right? Well, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who was coming into this church as the replacement pastor, so to speak, so there was a lot of established stuff, you know, so he's having to fight against some of this. He said, I know a way where we can make sure that this church is packed out on Sunday. Everybody said, oh, you've got to tell us what it is. And he says, what we'll do is I'll put an ad in the paper Saturday night that says, Dr. Lloyd-Jones is going to be preaching in Westminster Chapel in a bathing suit. He says, I guarantee you this place will be filled up on Sunday. And he says, everybody was, was shocked and offended by him saying that. But to quote again, he then went on to expound the biblical basis for proper worship. To correct the error just beginning to be prevalent of introducing various forms of entertainment into the worship service as a means of enticing people to attend. Entertainment. He says, if we're going to start doing things to get people in and keep them in, why don't we just go all out and I'll wear a bathing suit? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The importance of preaching and teaching the word of God. Even in the New Testament, the bulk of church meetings have always been preaching because this book is the bread of our lives. Amen? And the enemy wants to constantly be cutting us off from that supply, which is why our philosophy and our strategy, you could call it here, is to teach verse by verse, to lean into the teaching side of things probably more heavily than some would. Because I would rather you know that book for yourselves and be able to get the life lessons out of it for yourselves rather than being dependent upon me to give them to you. The Puritans used to have sermons that went for three to four hours and they'd have two of them on a Sunday. And I'm not suggesting we go back to that as much as I might enjoy that. But I think if there's one thing we can learn while we chuckle at Paul teaching past midnight and Eutychus falling out the window... We ought to have a hunger for the word of God. We ought to have an appetite so that we can take it. You know, I, I can't preach for four hours because there would be 50 Eutychuses in this room, right? And then people would say, oh, it's very great, but download the podcast. The services are way too long, right? There, there's, you have to understand who you're preaching to. But I hope that we all can constantly be growing in our love for the word so that that's an exciting thing to us, to be taught the word that much. Whenever we have conferences in the future, and we will, you might be surprised to see that it's basically going to be three days of teaching, morning, afternoon, and into the night, because that's the most important thing, that we're getting the word. When we go to Nepal and we teach these pastors, for a week, we did, I think it was six sessions a day of like an hour and change each, and they all sat there trying to write down everything as much as they could, and they were always asking us for more. 
Is that because they're so great? No, it's because they're hungry for the word. They don't get it. Some of them can't even read. So when they come and hear somebody explain as we were doing the gospel of Mark for the first time, they were desperate for it. I hope that we can refine our appetite so that as Hebrews 5.14 says, we can take solid food and we can take a lot of solid food and we don't fill up on junk food so that when it comes time to have a full steak dinner, we can't even handle it. Amos 8, you guys know this, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says, in the days are coming, there will be a famine in the land, not of bread or water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. I think our land itself is in a, such a famine because we want to tr- keep on like fast foodizing the word of God. Break it down smaller and smaller, water it down, sugar it up, make it as easy to get as possible. But the whole Bible isn't like that. There's plenty of places that they're, they're like popcorn. You can put it in and it's easy. But then you've got, like, you've got steak and potatoes in the Word. And you've got to have both. If you don't have both, you're going to be out of balance. This church should be an oasis in the middle of a famine of the Word of God. And you know what that means? Sometimes, I'm going to go ahead and just put this out there, sometimes we will miss the trends. Sometimes a very cool thing will blow through and we'll miss it. That's okay. And I'm not talking about like bad things that we should avoid. I'm talking about things that are perfectly fine. They're great. We might have loved it, but we're going to miss it because we're focused on this. We might miss certain public outcries along the way because we're just, our head is down in the word of God. I'm okay with that. I'm willing to make that trade. Sometimes we're not going to be right on the cutting edge, whatever that means. Because the cutting edge is always changing. I'd rather just stick with the word. The Lord will take good care of us if we do that. We're playing the long game, right? We're not trying to plan for the next three weeks or the next three years. I'm talking about the next 33 years, 300 years. If the Lord should wait 300 years to return, I hope there will still be people here in Calvary Chapel Trustville studying the word of God. And that never changes. Now, Paul did not have the problem of watering down the word. He spoke for a long time. And it says a young man... That word for young men is pais. It's where we get the word for pediatrician or pediatrician. This means a young man between 8 and 14 years old who fell asleep in the window. Even back then, the the youth group was trying to be cool and sit in the coolest spot. I'm going to sit in the window. (laughs) And he fell to his death. Just like Peter, back in Acts chapter 9, he raised someone from the dead. And it says that he stretched himself out on the boy. This is very similar to Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings. They both did the same thing when they raised young men from the dead. And lucky Eutychus revived. Praise the Lord for that. And then they go up. It says Paul conversed with them for a long while. So this is maybe different than preaching. They're having a conversation. This is why we have home fellowships and small groups and men's groups and things like that, so that there can be conversation around the word. 1 Corinthians 14, read it. There was plenty of participation in the church services, especially in the prayer meetings. But let's talk about Eutychus here. Because I think when we compare ourselves to Aristarchus or Tychicus or Billy Graham or Martin Lloyd-Jones, we feel like we fall much more in the Eutychus category. I'm not the guy that, that preaches to thousands of people. I'm the guy that falls asleep in the window and falls out. I know I feel like that quite often. And we know that God has a plan for our lives, and we get really excited, but then you live life for a while and you feel like a bus draft pick. 
Everybody was so excited. You're going to do so much. Oh, it's going to be great. I can't wait till the Lord uses you. And then a few years later, you're like, well, so much for all that. Like, I can't even stay awake. What, what are you talking? I can't preach. I can't even sit during a sermon. I can't lead. I can't evangelize. I can't give whatever it is because I, I, I just am not capable of that. The good news is that God knows that about you. You will never surprise God when you come and confess something to him, you know? Say, Lord, I just feel so inadequate. God's not going to go, what? Why? I didn't know that. God's going to like, I know. I know you do. And guess what? I know that you are. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? He goes on this big, long description of the new covenant and how we're ministers of a new covenant. And he's like, who is sufficient? Who's capable? Who can you say, that guy's good enough to do this job? But he says, it is Christ who makes us sufficient. If you can get that right, then it'll be just fine. And the Lord loves you. The Lord picked you despite all of that. Despite all of your shortcomings and all of your struggles, whether they're silly, like falling asleep, or whether they're more serious, like a, a sin that you're struggling to overcome, God knew that. He still desires to bring you to maturity. He still has a plan for you. He is prepared to wait until the seed has grown and sprouted before it starts bearing fruit. Psalm 103 says that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You ever see a father or a mother, usually the mothers, just going to be real here, at like a t-ball game? There's like five-year-old little Billy who gets up there and like swings and misses. I'm like, get your elbow up! Pivot that foot! Bring it around faster! It's like, he's five. <laughs> he can't even tie his shoes. Like, okay, we want to encourage again, but you're going to start hollering at him? It's like, do you not realize that this kid was peeing in his pants five seconds ago? And now you're all mad about this or whatever it is? It's, it's like, we treat ourselves like that spiritually sometimes. Get your act together. And God's like, take it easy on yourself. You're five. A few years ago, you remember what you were doing? We're, it's a process. We'll get there. But we're not there yet. Every hero of the faith had a period of training and growth. Billy Graham taught four sermons in eight minutes. And you know what it says he did after that in his book? He said, so I started getting in a canoe and going to an island in the middle of a lake and preaching to the woods because I knew that I stunk. So I'm like, well, all right, we're going to work on this. We're going to practice. And he had a process of growth and a process of learning. Samuel, we think of Samuel, oh, what the first prophet, what a great man. But he spent years working in the temple, learning from Eli, mostly bad example from Eli, having to be a part of this messed up system until eventually God brought him to the place where he was ready to lead the children of Israel. Think of Paul. Paul spent 14 to 17 years before he did a lick of ministry. Because God was refining him and preparing him. Joseph was not thrust to the top of Egypt. He had a long way to go. Moses had 40 years before God used him. God does not expect you to be a rock star right away. So take that pressure off your shoulders. Especially if you know what God's called you to do. Especially if you feel called to be a missionary or a pastor or something like that. You're like, oh, I'm just not ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> but God will get you ready. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Amen? You have foibles and you have struggles, but there is grace enough to cover that. As Christians, you have an unlimited supply of opportunities to try, to fail, and to get back up again. And I hope that we can have the same grace with each other, too. You know, that 
when someone gets up and preaches eight, four sermons in eight minutes, that we don't say, get down, what's wrong with you? Maybe this isn't your calling, that we can just love them like Jesus would love them and say, hey, thank you for bringing the word today. <laughs> we used to do these things back in Virginia where we'd have youth Sundays where we had a very big youth group so we would let the youth do all the serving on Sunday they do the children's ministry they do the worship team they do sound and projection hospitality greeting all this kind of stuff and there was always some ministry leaders that would just kind of shake in their boots (laughs) and sometimes we would have these guys that would be hanging around their station hollering at the kids like no that doesn't go there that goes there and what we had to explain to them was First of all, back off. She's 11. She's, you know, she's fine. But secondly, like, look, they're not doing a good job. That's the point. This is not for the people getting coffee that's made too strong with grounds in it. This is for her. This is for him getting the slides out of order. It's for them to learn what it's like to serve in the church. It's for them to grow and realize, I can do this. And if it's all about doing it perfect all the time, then there's never going to be any room for anybody to grow or to fail or any of that. Do not let your current Eutychus status keep you from moving forward. You have the Holy Spirit of God within you. Do you remember the blind man that was healed in the Gospel of John? And they brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they're questioning him on Jesus' doctrine, and they're laying out, don't you know what he said? Don't you know what he's done? He says, all I know is that I was blind, but now I see. That was enough. That was the level of what he could do, and he did it 100%. God's going to increase your capacity over the years. Right now, it might be small. Someday, it might be big. But if it's small, you do it as far as you can, as well as you can, as much as you can within that capacity. And then God will expand it, and you do it to that capacity. You don't look down the line of what God wants you to be and hold yourself by that standard. You hold yourself to the standard you're at right now. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, you know this passage, but it's a great one. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says, yeah, we're all a bunch of scrubs. We all got cut from the team. We are the dregs of society. But we've got Jesus, and he supplies all that is lacking within us. As long as you can view your life as as like a scatter graph that's moving upward. One day it's up. The next day it's down. Maybe the next day it's even further down. But the next two days are up. Like over the years, you say, okay, there's been big ups and downs, but it's all trending in a Godward direction. That's enough. You don't have to be perfect and have an unbroken streak of perfect days. Yield to the Lord and he'll grow you up. There's grace for that. Well, bringing it to a close here, verses 13 through 16. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Maybe Paul got seasick. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. 
For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul was in Troas, and here's Assos, very close. But Paul chose not to sail there. He chose to go across the land. This is not explained. It could be that Paul was not feeling well, and he didn't want to get on a boat. Some of you might know how that feels. It could have been that he was still worried about the plot from the Jews, that they're still trying to shake this tail that's following them, you know? But then they, they sail. They go to Mytilene first on the island of Lesbos. Then they went down to Chios and Samos, which are some famous islands in Greek and Roman history because Chios was the home of Homer, where Homer, the famous poet, had been born. And Samos is where Pythagoras, the famous mathematician and philosopher, was from. So just little notes because there is history to these places. And finally, he comes to Miletus. And this is going to be his last stop before the long trek back to Jerusalem. And Miletus was 30 miles south, you can see, of Ephesus. And Paul's not wanting to spend any more time on land. He wants to get back. And so he's actually, next week, we're going to see call for the elders of Ephesus to come to him so that he can talk to them rather than going there. And that's going to be what we talk about next time. So let's wrap it up here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I taught you, now you teach them so that they can teach them. This is the process in the church. This is discipleship, that we are constantly raising up good Christians that you are finding somebody that knows a little less than you and you're helping them. And you're finding somebody who knows a little more than you and you're letting them help you. It's a constant process. And Paul was a master of this, as we saw today. He was always raising up other people. Our own pastor, Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of the first Calvary Chapel, was a master of this as well. He was ministering during the Jesus movement where a bunch of hippies were getting saved. But he was willing to let guys like that get up and preach in his church where everybody was wearing three-piece suits and singing hymns. He let the rock bands get up and play their Jesus songs. And you know what? A lot of those guys, later on, they failed. And they messed up. But so many of them were given those opportunities to grow, and now they're out there serving the Lord, and they've made disciples who are making disciples, and here we are today as a result of what he did. Because he was willing to say, I want to see the next generation raised up. It's born great fruit. And I hope that I can always be striving to provide opportunities for you to grow and to serve in the church. This is a team effort. You're not the audience, right? I'm the pastor and the preacher, but that doesn't mean that I'm the performer and you guys just come and watch me a couple times a week. You've got to take responsibility for yourself, though. We're going to do our best to give opportunities, but you can't just say, well, I, I don't have any chances that really excite me. Well, go find one. Go make one. Go invent one. The Lord has something for you to do. So when the moment comes, when Paul comes to you and says, hey, would you mind coming with me while we bring the collection to Jerusalem? How long are we going to be gone? I don't know. Okay, I'll go. Being willing to take that step of faith. You might be Eutychus now, but God wants you to be Aristarchus later. And that just comes from being faithful in ministry. I remember being given opportunities to preach from a very young age. And I have some hilarious stories I could tell you later. I have some notes going back to like 2010 when I was 
just out of high school and when I was teaching and I look at them now and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> there, I have some things, I've thought things that I thought I would try and then I ended up not trying and I'm like, thank you Lord for not letting me do that. That would have been the most embarrassing thing that ever happened. And I was given chances to mess up, giving chances to do poorly, get up there and lead worship. Well, he started singing in the wrong key. Well, that happens sometimes, I guess. But the Lord, the Lord and the people that I was around, they allowed me to work through a lot of those bugs early on, you know, to work them out when I was 16 and 17 rather than being 26 and 27. And there's nothing wrong with that. But everyone wants to come to me, and sometimes people will say, you're so young and you're so capable. It's like, well, hold on. There's nothing special about me. I was just allowed to start a lot sooner. So when are you going to get started? You can't wait until you're ready. You get ready by going. And whenever any aspiring preacher or aspiring worship leader or what have you would come to the church, and they would say, hey, I love seeing a young man serving in ministry. I want to do the same. What do I got to do? I always gave them the same advice. I said, show up early, stay late, Find things to do, do what needs to be done, earn trust, and then eventually we'll, we'll see if you're ready. Almost no one did that. Instead, they would shop around town until they found a church that would let them preach or lead worship or whatever it is. But you know, the few that did do that, even though they might not have been the most talented or the most capable, they're the ones that are in full-time ministry now. It's like, just take a step out. You know you want to be mature in Christ. You want to fulfill your calling. You know that you've got to grow. The way you grow is by taking the steps that are in front of you. Talent does not matter nearly as much as faithfulness. The Lord can take somebody with no talent who's very faithful and use them. But it is very hard to take somebody who is very talented and very full of themselves and cannot work hard. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Practice. Practice these things. Get better at them, Paul says. The Lord has a plan for your life. He has works prepared for you to walk in. So take the opportunities that you have. Fail a few times so that you can grow. And give each other grace to fail and to get better. God does not require us to do everything God did not show up to Bible College Billy Graham and say, now go preach in that arena. He said, I want you to go preach at the Boswick Bible Church in Florida. And he taught four sermons in eight minutes. Just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. So let me ask, what's the next thing for you? Let the Lord show you. We all want to grow up, but we've got to do it. There's grace to fail. There's grace to try. There's grace to grow, but you've got to do it. So my advice to you, my charge to you, select one thing that you can start doing for the Lord and start learning how to do it well. And the Lord will support you along the way. And you'll discover that before too long, you'll have matured into a faithful, competent servant of God. And then God will start the process of bringing other people along beside you that you can raise up to do the same thing. And the church will continue to grow and continue to mature until Jesus comes back.